You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. How you guys doing? Good day. Yeah, doing great. Evan, who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Chris Heath. He came into the office. He is a writer for GQ. You've probably seen his stuff. It's on an incredibly wide range of topics. He's Did he have really... that uh, National Magazine Award glow? Mm, yeah, he, he's a very self-facing guy, so he didn't want to say much about that, but he did just win the National Magazine Award for uh, reporting. So he is a fantastic reporter, in addition to being uh, quite a stylist. So uh, it was a fun talk. If you fancy yourself a stylist, you might want to start an email newsletter, and there's no better place to do it than Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. They are our sponsor, but they are not our only sponsor. Yeah, if you fancy the idea of becoming a reporter like Chris Heath or any of the other guests we've had on the show, consider applying to our second sponsor, the Literary Reportage Concentration at NYU. Okay, here's Chris and Evan. To the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Which elides the fact that you've been sitting here for 20 minutes as I try to make the audio settings cooperate. But thank you for doing that. No, my pleasure. Um, so, um, I don't know, maybe this is a weird place to start, but I'm really fascinated with the kind of like your movement between celebrity profiles and sort of newsy slash featurey. I mean, newsy is probably not not the right word. They're not like on the news, but um, this the way you sort of travel between those two. I mean, I guess here's the sort of like the very magazine business question, which is if you had the choice, would you just do one or the other? Like, are you doing celebrity profiles because you have to? Absolutely not. And I, I think I think the um, I think more conventionally, um, to, let's be honest. I think people who a lot of people doing nonfiction writing, if if they have the choice, don't want to do them, mm-hmm. and 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 the worst thing all do them sort of under sufferance. Um, you know, um, I I love doing both things. The only thing that I find weird is I know I know that's how it's seen completely from the outside. I don't see them as two things, mm. and I don't. And and I think if I did, then I would then I might feel differently about it. Um, you know, to to me, they're the same kind of 
you know, for me, it's the same approach. It's the same way of thinking about stuff. To me, it's, I, I think that the, the problem is there's this thing that people think of called celebrity journalism, which, you know, which, of course, and I'm not putting down the people who are doing it, but most of it is sort of, is sort of fairly, from my point of view, fairly pointless. Yeah. And, and you mean the day to day? Well, just, or, you know, you know just, just, like just, just I mean, just pointless is really unfair, but it's not the kind of writing that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the kind of way of talking about things and thinking about things that I'm interested in. But pretend that didn't exist. Then pretend, you know, pretend you were a nonfiction writer and someone said to you that there was this thing where there's these people who do these kinds of things you know, do these kind of jobs and have had these kind of experiences and you could watch them do these kind of things and then they're, they're in these, str- they have these, all these people around them who treat them in different ways and they have all these strange ideas, some of which are magnificent and some of which might be kind of crazy and you could go and report on that. Then, you know, that would seem to be, ju- you know, th- th- just as appealing and sometimes more appealing than it'd be like, oh, do you want to go and... Um, you know, do you want to go to an and report on being on an Icelandic trawler? Do you want to go and report on this thing called a film star? They're both brilliant subjects. Yeah. Um, so then how much of the, uh, I mean, you've profiled so many people over the years, and I was looking at a Johnny Depp one from Rolling Stone. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, it opens with you and he, you're in a bar together, mm-hmm. I think, or mm-hmm. at least at one point in the piece, you're in a bar. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where I would think, like, Johnny Depp's never going to go to a bar with, you know, he's never going to go to a bar with me. Like, he's never going to fall for that. Well, no. <laughs> Why does it have to be a trick? <laughs> <laughs> I just think about it all yeah, the wrong you know, way. You know, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've, my path, my path hasn't crossed with him for many, many years, but um, I wrote about it about him a couple of times back then and he you know he is fantastic company and we would spend time together you know doing doing silly things and going to bars and playing pool and running around we spent a few days once running around san francisco waiting for andres thompson to turn up <laughs> um you know there's no real you know i mean you can't you can't plan for that to happen and you can't expect it to happen but there's no reason why you know if you approach things in the right way and you're there's no reason why now and again it won't happen. Do you have uh, a sort of repertorial style for that? That getting together with with someone like that who's maybe used to people acting a certain way towards them. I don't really have any particular style or approach. I don't think. I think I'm just, you know, to write about anybody, whether they're famous or not, is to be interested in them and to be interested in them and what's surrounding them and their story. And so I like to watch people. And I like to ask them a ton of questions, and it, and in a way, quite you know, sometimes people, particularly particularly uh, famous people, they'll kind of say, "What's this article going to be about?" And I'm always baffled by this question. And they really think you know the answer and that you're hiding something. And I usually sort of say, and it's probably slightly annoying. I'll say, "Well, it's about you." <laughs> You know, but that is about as far as I've got at that point. Doesn't mean I won't have done a ton of research. Doesn't mean I won't have written a ton of questions that are me thinking through stuff, places that I think will be interesting to go into and stuff. But I, but that doesn't mean I know what it's going to be about. Yeah. It's sort of, what's your, what's your angle? What's your angle here? I've never really had an angle ever. <laughs> you know, I mean, there'll be something, I wouldn't call it an angle, but there'll be something, you know, at the end there'll be a story and the story, I guess, is retrospectively one, one or many great big angles. 
But I think, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but if you walk in there and you know what your story is going to be, why would you do it? Right, yeah. And you're, you're now I want to go back a little bit because, sure. uh, you know, just reading about your career history and, you know, a lot of things will say, like, you started, you started writing a book about the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> but that seems like an insane place to start. That's probably not where you actually started. <laughs> but that's sort of like the, the Wikipedia version of where you started. I, li I like that. Yeah, you just like one day you just I, showed I, up. I shouldn't correct it. I should. I should just let it be that. I think that's a that, that's a lovely way to start. But how how did it come about? So the story behind the story. Sure. Um, I, I I started out mostly writing about music, uh, pop music. Um, in the UK. In the UK, which you know I grew up obsessed with and remain obsessed with. Um, and I worked for a very big pop magazine there. And, and and then I wrote for other kind of magazines and that and the you know the Pet Shop Boys. Um, doing the Petra Boys book, you know, came out of being in that world. But, but, you know, I mean, it's a book about a pop group in a very specific time. But the incredibly exciting thing for me even back then about doing it was that it was my first real chance to write a kind of long narrative account of something in exactly the way of the writing, you know, the writing that I... that. The, you know, mostly writing from America that I would read and, you know, would one would hope that someday I could do something like. This was my first chance to have a shot at doing it. Mm. And I never thought of it as a pop book, you know, even then, and very strongly didn't think of it as that. You know, I wanted it to be something that had, that was, you know, they and they were, they were amazingly, um, amazingly good subjects to write about because they're very smart, they're very funny. Uh, they were incredibly generous to me in allowing me to be, um, in you know very close up for huge amounts of the time, and in an era this would, I was reported it in 1989, in an era where pop music was incredibly cosmetic and incredibly controlled, and most people who had books that most people who had books written about them did everything they could to make the books as cosmetic as possible. Mm -hmm. The Petra Boys almost relished the idea that they would let someone do not deliberately the opposite but by not forcing that it became somewhat the opposite you know it was it was not the way that people wrote about pop groups certainly not with their consent so it wasn't a mediated image through handlers and that's sort of no thing. they they, they you know they do the you know they, you know they i mean when they first read a draft of it they were horrified <laughs> <laughs> but then it was too late no well you know we took but i think they came around um but no and you know but they, I think they could see what was what was worthwhile about it, even even while they were horrified. And I almost, I wonder if maybe even they slightly quite liked being horrified. Have you had people come back to you and say, "This was a hatchet job," or what, you know, what? You... you get, you get, of course, you get people who are unhappy. Um, but my experience is, you could, you know, you'd be you'd be a fool to try and. Um, I, I mean, I fear that some people might write pieces trying to prevent that happening and I think it's an absolute fool's errand because you will never guess I don't think what someone's going to get upset by normally if there's something very difficult to talk to someone about if you talk to them about it, them honestly even if they don't want to talk about it and then if you and then if you give a, a fair honest account of that conversation then people are not annoyed about that they might it doesn't mean they were necessarily thrilled to have the conversation but 
when people are annoyed, it just tends to be something that you just never thought of. Yeah. Whether 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 and and when you when you if you find out about it, you don't always. Sometimes it makes sense, and sometimes it still makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Sometimes it's that physical description that you think is not unflattering, but somehow <laughs> touches on some raw uh, self perception that someone has. Uh, yeah, I don't think it would be that with me because I'm. I'm famously terrible at describing people that's, really? a, that's a frequent editor comment <laughs> what do they look like <laughs> so let's go let's go back to um so you wrote this book and then did that push you into magazines in the u.s or did you move here um it was it was it was a whole lot of things happening all at once around the same time as the book came out and i was doing more high-profile writing in the UK. I was doing a lot of writing for a magazine called The Face, mm-hmm. which was a great place to write. Great magazine, yeah. um, and um, and at that time, um, uh, an American editor called David Keeps, who had worked on the American version of the pop magazine I'd worked on, was hired by James Truman when Details was being restarted as a different magazine, maybe the end of 1989 or the beginning of 1990. Mm-hmm. And... And so they uh, they asked me, did I have any ideas for the first issue? And I suggested some stuff. They commissioned something. It, you know, I, I didn't realize this was my future. I just thought, this is cool. I'm going to get to write something in a good American magazine. Oh, really? And I had a story in the first issue. I think I had one in the second issue. And within, um, you know, within a year, I think I had a contract. And... Uh, and then, and that, you know, and I've been writing for American magazines ever since. And have you always been sort of at one place? I have, primarily? yeah. I was with uh, Details for, um, I think, six years. And this is, you know, diff- very different details to the one now. Yeah. You know. um, and then I was at Rolling Stone for six or seven years. And then I've been at GQ for nearly ten, nine or ten. And have you been predominantly based in the UK during that time? Or have you been back um, and forth? Sort of back and forth and then more and more. Uh, in more and more in America, and now I'm, you know, still a bit back and forth, but I'm mostly here now. And do you find when you do sort of non-music uh, film stories? I mean, those those are things that you know, American culture and British culture. There's a lot of mixing, and but when you do, you feel like you have sort of an anthropological view of sort of American culture outside of pop culture when you go to do a story in the U.S. I mean, I, th- I think that's sort of the way I look at stuff naturally, but I don't think I have a particular um, extra bit of that from um, from being British. I think, you know, if you go and, um, you, know, you know, I wrote this story um, in Ohio, I'm not really sure that the world of sort of exotic animal owners in Ohio and the world of a small town sort of sheriff's department in Ohio, I'm not really sure that that's much closer to, you know, most reporters than it is to me. You know, the extra yeah. little bit of me being English doesn't seem like very significant. You know, no, and, you... I don't, and I don't, and I, 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 I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I would never avoid saying I was English or, or something, but it very rarely comes up in anything that I do. I mean, it's obvious when you talk to me, but, but it's like, I don't think I write in a English with from an English sort of non-American perspective. Maybe I'm maybe I'm deluding myself about that, but I don't feel I do. No, I mean, I, I, at least if that exists in your writing, I haven't. I don't. I, I can't detect it myself or like point to what it would be. I mean, they, I was I was curious what your 
I mean, are there advantages in it even uh, in terms of reporting? Is there something, uh, you know, less less threatening or? I think I think occasionally. I mean, it's a general thing. I think occasionally um, being as distant, being culturally and sort of what you are, being very distant from the people you're writing about sometimes can be a sort of advantage because if you're sort of completely if they're not able to put you in any particular context and if you present yourself in good ways apart from that then maybe that's easier than them being able to say well I know kind of who you are or who you represent or mm-hmm. I'm not sure maybe a bit well let's talk about the Zanesville story sure. uh, a bit because I think in in sort of like magazine writing circles there's sort of like an extra layer of interest that people have in that story beyond its sort of normal, uh, what a normal magazine story would be. But I mean, one thing that I find really interesting about it is just that that was a huge, at least one day slash two, three day media story. And how do you first make the decision, okay, this is worth putting some time into that there may be a story beyond what has already been told. Um, And maybe just give a capsule of the story if there happens to be anyone on earth who hasn't uh, heard this story before sure which is i i'm gonna get it wrong <laughs> so I'm gonna have to wait you can't get it wrong <laughs> but uh i guess it I, I hope i'm right in saying october 2011 um a farmer in ohio called terry thompson let out uh all his wild animals turned out there's about 50 of them including 17 or 18 lions 17 or 18 tigers um and killed himself uh having let them free and it was a huge story, as you say, on the news. Um, and these animals were running wild um, out of the boundary of his property. And in the next few hours, they were all all shot dead. So that was the news story. Um, and so, like you say, then the, you know, then there was then there was um, then then there was the question of um, what what would what would a magazine story be and what would you do and when would you do it and I was slightly in the edges involved in some discussions in the two or three days after of should we go now should we do it with editors at GQ yeah yeah yeah, but it wasn't like it was commissioned to me but I was part of a discussion and um and other people had other ideas and I had some thoughts and then it sort of faded away to be honest we didn't commit the GQ didn't commission it right then oh really and then a few weeks later we sort of revisited it and I I like the idea of um, it's difficult when you're a monthly magazine because obviously you can't react like a newspaper so you're always going to lose that cycle of reaction and though it's different for different stories I like the idea that there's a period of time you know in a way after the kind of circus has left town if you like when maybe people who for a while were kind of annoyed that the media were running all over um, probably they think misstating really what happened there and probably misrepresenting their community and and that you then maybe there's a time when you can come into town after that and people are actually you know some people are still not going to be that thrilled to see you but some people will be oh you, you you've got time to really listen you've got time to really you know understand what happened here because everyone's got it wrong I'm not saying that's exactly what happened in this thing, but I think that's that's a, there is a kind of moment there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we um, you know, we decided to, you know, the, for me to go there and start reporting, and and the only you know, and uh, and I did have a fixed idea that it wasn't enough. Not that this is right or wrong, but it was definitely my idea that it wasn't enough just to write about the events of that night. That 
it needed some wider, broader context to be a kind of story that I felt would work. Um, and the the final story has, you know, is really effectively in three parts. And the first part is telling the story of the night. The second part, which was what I thought was going to be maybe all of the rest of it, mm. was going into the into the world of exotic animal owners. You know, I spent a lot of time going around Ohio, a bit of time in Indiana. You know, tracking people down, it's not easy. There's no register of people who own these animals. Um, <laughs> right. and, but eventually, design. you know, finding people, persuading them to see me. And then you'd go around people's houses and you'd go around their back garden and they would have four tigers in a cage <laughs> in a normal back garden. I mean, it was astonishing. And and I went, in fact, much deeper into that than than you could even tell from the final story. And then I always wanted to, you know, it always seemed to be, if possible, a key part of it was to really understand who this man, Terry Thompson, was. But I knew that was going to be hard. And, and in fact, I spent a week in Zanesville and got very, didn't get very far with that at all. And I just kept working, kept working, trying to find things and trying to... From kind of, there, or you came back? No, no, I came back. I was, I was in Indiana, then I was in New York, then I was in England. And I just kept, you know, searching things on the internet, just trying to find strange ways into his life and you know you, you, people know what it's like you know every time you know every 10 things you find nine of them you get knocked back from but then a few things started coming into place and um i mean it's it was sort of nuts you know in what's certainly unusual how i got i finally found a woman on a conspiracy theory website who lived in hawaii who had been at school with him and I, I finally got in touch with her, found out who she, found out how to contact her, corresponded with her for a while. And literally in the end of her last email, she just mentioned that her, her best friend at school had been his high school sweetheart uh, yeah. and said the name of the guy that uh, she married. So then it was like, can I find her? Yeah. Like, and I could. And that, that kind of bursted open. Um, and without that, I don't think... Um, I don't think it would have worked nearly so well. And do you feel like, well, first of all, we should say that conspiracy theory, with conspiracy theory websites, with that that was because there were conspiracy theories about why he died. Not really. I mean, the, it, was, it, was just just, like, it was just a coincidence. Oh. I, I was I was randomly searching for um, phrases through the internet that would be, you know, phrases that people who might have known him would have posted on forums. Oh. I was just really, really just, you know, it's like putting a bucket into the ocean and <laughs> seeing if I could find something. Wow. And do you feel like if you hadn't gotten that or if you'd end up feeling like the parts on, on Thompson himself are, are thin that you would have reorganized and just done a different piece or did it all fall apart without that? No, no, no. No, because I was I was already I already had a way I thought I would write it uh, without that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I mean, as soon as, as I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult. Once you know something, it's very hard to remember again what you would have done without knowing it and you immediately think it would have been lesser maybe it could have been great you know and that you know as we saw there are a load of different ways to write stories about that situation you know and there's at least four really proper pieces about that situation and they're all different and they've all got real strengths to them they all are different you that's know. that's part of what's amazing i mean the, yeah. to me there's something sad about it just because the coincidence of it it just seems like it, we have two, at least two of our great working magazine writers working on the same story. I mean, it was a nice like laboratory test, but also kind of like 
unfortunate that one one of you couldn't be off working on something else that we could read. But I, I, it was really interesting to see at the end because you never see a control of multiple people writing about something how they how the approaches differed. Did you read them all? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and but I mean, I think I think that's the thing is that you know you know they. You know, in a way, I see it as a yeah. Maybe you wouldn't wish for it as an experiment, but in a way, it's a nice experiment. You know, separate from all the hubbub around it, you saw that there were these different ways of doing, doing things, and there really were strengths to all of them. I mean, I thought they were all good. You know, um, yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's interesting people's reaction to them too, because you mm. get the people saying, "Well, the it was Cincinnati Magazine." Well, the Cincinnati yeah. Magazine, you know, no, not as many people read that one, but that was really the one. And so other people saying, "Like the GQ one is really the one." People who approached it as readers, well, the Cincinnati piece, they like, got, you know, Cincinnati piece has got some amazing reporting in. Yeah, yeah. And Did you feel that uh, in the moment? I mean, we I interviewed Chris Jones, so I you know I asked him about it. And he's pretty open about. Uh, you know, feeling competitive, like he—he—that's he, part of what motivates him. Feeling competitive, and this was an extreme situation because you guys are there at the same time, reporting the same story. But did you feel that? Is that something that? It's difficult because you know he, you know I—I I mean, as you probably know, I didn't even—I didn't join in at yeah. all when this became. Yeah, you didn't. A you thing. didn't really talk about it, um, and and so you know, I'm very hesitant to, you know. Um, Of course, I'm, I think all writers are competitive. I think there's different ways of being competitive, but I, it would be just totally disingenuous of me to say I'm not competitive. Cause I mean, no one likes to see someone else publish. Just, I mean, for one thing, your story could get killed potentially. It may not have been true in this case, but yeah, but, I, mean, there's, I mean, there's certainly that. I mean, that was a much more practical concern uh, when we realised the situation was: is there any possibility they could publish before us? Because you know that was a that's just a much more realistic publishing uh, publishing problem that would look wouldn't wouldn't be good to have you know to having a big competitor you know the same subject the month before that would be and then it would be too late <laughs> you'd already be oppressed you know right. um, but we but we worked out that was impossible um, that you know that I mean you know my thought when I when I realised was. It was, kind of, it was kind of like you know, fair enough. You know, that's I wasn't like you know. He's good. I I I should be allowed to think that I'm good, and you know, so let's just do our thing and see what happens. Yeah, that, that's sort of how I thought of it. I didn't think of it as uh, you know that it had to be have an edge to it beyond that. Yeah, I, that seems like a totally reasonable approach to it i mean to some extent like way too much is made out of that sort of thing then uh is is reasonable but i am i am interested beyond all that whether who else was reporting it you talked about being there and not not getting anywhere with the reporting and how did you how do you break through that i know that the finding someone on the internet but in in person in people don't want to talk to you how what's your approach to break through that I mean, I don't. I mean, it wasn't totally true that you know, because on on the one side of reporting what happened uh, on the night, mm -hmm. you know, I made huge progress with that, and I found people. It, it wasn't easy to find people or persuade them, but I, that went really well. So I knew I that part of the story I felt was was coming together well. I don't, you know, for the other stuff, I I mean, I I think I've. Uh, I mean, I don't have a. Um, I don't have training or you know in traditional you know journalism and methods and 
you know, I, and I, certainly that, that could be a disadvantage at times. But I also think it's an advantage because uh, you're just trying to work out what on earth can you do. And you just try, you know, sometimes you just sit in a hotel room with a fair amount of despair, just thinking I've tried everything I can think of. What can I try that I haven't thought of? Uh-huh. And I think that's, you know, the, you know, like I'm saying, you know, you, you know, you know, googling, googling weird phrases that you think might pull something up. You know, that's, you know, I think if I was really well trained, I probably wouldn't think of doing that. Yeah, that might be considered sort of not 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 a proper approach, not a rigorous approach. It's sort of a scattershot yeah. approach. Yeah. So how how much how much despair? I mean, you you work because <laughs> you've been working as a staff writer for major magazines for all this time do you still reach the level that some of us sometimes do where we're sort of like this one's not working and i'll never work again well i i was i i, I reported a piece a month after the um tsunami in japan um and it was a story that really hinged around what happened to different groups of children who'd been in jeopardy mm-hmm. um and you know, Japan. Japan is. I think it's a difficult country to report in. Um, it's difficult to get people's confidence. Um, when you talk to people, it's difficult to know necessarily the best ways to get them to to talk to you and tell you things that that you want to know for an article. And um, and that, and I about four days into being there, and I had. For a limited time frame, I think I had eight days on the ground, properly reporting. That whole I, piece you had eight days yeah, to do. Yeah. God. Um, and um, and I and I just didn't have anything. I mean, we do, basically there had to be at least two contrasting situations. In fact, the story is built around three in yeah. the end. But there had to be at least two contrasting situations, and I didn't have that, and I couldn't find a way of getting it, and and I don't, it was very uh, that was proper despair <laughs> and it was you know you're a long way from home and you're in this hotel where literally we, there were aftershocks every day yeah it was um, uh, right i mean you must have gone it was, it was a few weeks after but the aftershocks yeah. got really bad a month after uh, it was weird you have you know had a japanese cell phone and they have this warning system which means that every so often your phone would ring, a special ring, and you look it up and all it would say on the screen was earthquake. And that meant that in four seconds' time, things were going to start shaking, <laughs> which I'm not used to. <laughs> and did you have to, I assume you, uh, do you, you don't speak Japanese? Not a word, no. No, and I had a, I had a, a translator and, and researcher who, I mean, did amazing work on, in this case, um, an awful lot of what I did was simply encourage her on, uh, to impossible lengths to keep trying stuff um, until we got somewhere. And then within that eight day, you didn't? Did you extend, or within the eight days it came together? Yeah, yeah. So what's on the other side of the despair when you start? When it starts moving, or you start hearing from people? Well, then you just get in a fever of work, you know, because you never really know. You know when you haven't got a story. But I don't know that you truly know whether you've got a really good story until until someone else tells you you have probably. <laughs> what about when you sit down to write? Do you uh, do you have a writing method? You have. I've been reading all these. I don't know if you read these. Uh, John McPhee's doing this series of stories yeah, in New Yorker. Yeah. And there's 
it's just remarkable. Like this, this one was going to be structured A B F. It seems like uh, a foreign language. The the rigorousness of it all. Yeah, mine's alphabet spaghetti. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's all on top. I mean, I do think in a very sort of in my head, it wouldn't make any sense to explain to someone. I do think in a very kind of structured way. Mm-hmm. But I can't. I, but I. I tend to think I might be completely wrong. There's two completely different ways that I think this is the kind of person you can sit down and will write the first line of their piece and then the second line of their piece and then the third line of their piece. I don't think I've done that in my life. Mm. I I have to sort of go inside the story, start working on bits of it, trying to work out how bits that I feel like connect to other bits do connect, often find I'm completely wrong and that there's something else that has to happen. And I sort of it, and the story sort of explodes outwards from that. I don't know if that makes the slightest bit of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually I, I write in a similar way. Right. But for me, I always thought of it as as a little bit of laziness in the sense that, or like, uh, I can't do delayed gratification. Like the part that I know how it goes, I just write that part because that's easy. Like even if it's in the middle, just I write that part and then kind of grow out from there because I already know how it goes. Yeah, I don't. I, well, I mean, obviously, I I understand it because that's what you know what I what I make sense. I think I always think how easy it would be to do it the other way if you could know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the people who do it that way think, yeah. "Oh, I wish I could do it the other yeah. way." But then you said you uh, so you don't you never really know uh, you know if the story came together until afterwards. So you know to take the Zanes, go back to the Zanesville story. So you finish that story, the story ships it comes out, there's this little hubbub about other people doing the story and then do you think uh, this is this is one of the best pieces I've ever done? Uh or do you think all right, well, good story. What's next? Um well you you obviously feel the second because there's always what's next is always you know, pressing pretty quickly, and I like that feeling of what's next. But but no, I mean, I was really proud of it, um, and I thought it was special. But you know, beyond that, you you know, you don't know. You'd love other people to agree, but you know, doesn't mean they will. But you also, I mean, you seem to be remarkably. Uh, I was going to say resistant, but that that implies motive. But you're not you're not you're not one in the daily fray of. Uh, I mean, especially media things, but certainly you're not on Twitter. Is that right? That's right. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem like you do daily blogging for GQ or anything Nothing, like no, that. No. And is that what's behind that as a choice? Um, the best answer I could give would just not say anything. That would be totally in keeping. <laughs> I that would be the end of the interview. <laughs> Actually, or you could say, in fact, I'm wasting my time right now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sort of struggling a bit for an answer. Um, it's not, it's not some grand declaration um, or anything like that. Um, and I don't, I don't, um, doesn't preclude me doing anything in the future. And I think, you know, there are definitely, there are definitely ways in which more and more. You know, you know, there may be things that I'm, I'm, uh, you know, maybe doing myself down by not being more involved in those ways. You know, a lot of the truth is I've just been, I've been crazy busy, and I haven't really had a purpose or a reason to to do those things. Um, I mean, you know, Twitter, which I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good, you know, loiterer on Twitter. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm unaware of you know, right, right. conversations on it and stuff, um, but. Um, I think it's. I think. I mean. I do think it's weird for um, for magazine writers. 
uh, you know, especially with long lead times, because you can't, in a, you can't write about what you're doing in an honest way. I don't think some people do, and I think it's weird. Yeah. And then some people are coy about it, and I think that's that's sort of. I think that must that must be annoying. Just got an exciting new assignment. Yeah, and it's like you'll find out about it in six months. Yeah, and 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 you know that wouldn't suit me doing that. And and I don't have. And then some people have you know other interests that they want to have a public conversation about. Um, I don't feel particularly drawn to do that, um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of interested whether I'm, you know, whether it's inc- recklessly foolish of me not to be engaged like this. That's uh, very. Yeah, it's very hard to say. It's sort of that you could imply. It imply everyone's doing it, so you feel like, well, there must be some benefit, but it's not actually clear what the benefit is for for a writer of long stories. What the what the people are getting out of it besides a sort of, you know, if they enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think, that, you know, there's, I mean, there's got to be a sense that if you want people to have some cumulative sense of what you do, that conversation is moving more and more online. And, um, and you know, maybe I'm missing out on that to some degree. I'm not in other ways, but... And do you follow, uh, with your loitering, are you able to sort of discern... Uh, the reader response to stories? Do you try to stay away from that? I don't try and stay away from it. Um, I don't... I think it's hard to... I think it's hard to judge those things from from online responses anyway. I'm fairly suspicious of... Um, of how true a reading those are. I think that, I think that maybe slightly comes from having spent time around... Um, musicians um and you know the notion that they're fan mail or that the the or that the kind of messages they get uh, from the people who are who are motivated enough to get messages messages to them represents their true audience you know it's perfectly apparent in those cases that it doesn't and that if you you know took that took the took those responses as indicative you would make a lot of terrible mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and i you know i don't i'm you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated to read a load of uh, very heated responses about something online, but I'm not sure at this point whether that fully represents the readership of something. I don't yeah. know. What do you think? Well, we, I was, uh, one time I edited the letters section for when I worked at Wired magazine, and it was always so clear that, you know, the people who were motivated enough to write were usually angry. Anger's a better motivator, mm. even mm. than I love this thing. And this is when they had to write letters, yeah, uh, and then and then email. But um, so I've always been felt influenced by that. That people who are angry want to go talk about it, and people who really love something want to go talk about it. And then the people who sort of thought, "That's oh, a great story." They're, they're just they're not. And that you know, and those more extreme reactions, it's not that they're not, not valid, and it's not they're not interesting. All I you know, all I wonder is that you know, like like you say, is how representative they are. Yeah. And I, I suppose probably haven't asked enough about celebrities. I mean, I feel like you get to spend time in a way with people who. I mean, there's this type of Zanesville story where you're actually, it, there may be access issues, but you're trying to get to people who 
lead more ordinary lives in a way, in a, in a sort of... I, I, I love that you just said that a story about a guy who had 50 <laughs> wild animals, you know, and all these other people who keep tigers are people who lead more ordinary oh, lives. Ridiculous. That's my Great. point. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous premise of a question. But basically the question that I'm trying to and, ask and is yes, like... yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I know. You spend time with people who their time is highly coveted. Their t- not even their time, but millions of people would love to know them and be their friends. And um, what is that like is what I'm trying to ask, but sort of like, does that have an effect on your life in any way? There's people who, I guess, get close to that who then want it. I think that, you know, no one's perfect and no one's, you know, immune to every aspect of this. And so I suspect I'm probably not in ways that I don't even realize. But I think that, to be as immune as immune as possible to that is a prerequisite for doing it the way that I think it should be done. You know, you you know, if you're if you're going to be in any way starstruck or in any way looking for some kind of to satisfy the people you're writing about, I think it's strange. You know that you know if someone like I don't know why I'm everything's an Icelandic trawler, but let's <laughs> let's keep it like you know if you go and write sounds about, like we know your next story. <laughs> I'm not going on an Icelandic trawler. Uh, If you go and write about an Icelandic trawler, are you trying to please the people? You know, maybe some people are. I just never really think of that. You know, and I wouldn't think of trying to please, you know, some celebrity. Um, I, I, I would think, like, I am presenting myself as someone who's going to be rigorous and honest. And really, if you can engage in the way I'm asking you to engage, then I... I hope that you will recognize yourself in a more truthful way in this story than you usually do, and maybe even with a bit of luck than you ever have before. But that's it. You know, that's what I bring. That's my offer. Yeah, it's funny you say that because actually I didn't even think about your most recent piece. Actually, it's more like a Q&A, if it is a Q&A, with Ricky Gervais. Sure. And there's an aspect of it where there's a particular question that you're trying to ask him, which is, you know, how much of your persona is you and how much is is put on and there's a sort of uh, addendum to that which is you know are you still funny or did you was david brent the funniest thing you ever did and you'll never get back to it and he, you approach it in these different ways but you you don't keep coming at him in an aggressive way but it seems like you you keep pushing it until you get to a point where he genuinely pauses to think about it and answers it in a really thoughtful way but it seemed easy to ask it once and then say all right. Yeah. Right, but I, I I know what you mean. That you know, but it but I mean, I was thinking it's interesting. I did read some of the online comments about that, and people who are very much in his corner. And I think he he was he was, he, I think he liked that conversation because he got to explain himself in a really clear, and interesting and funny and articulate way. Um, but a, a lot of the people who support him online would read these questions like, do you do, you know, do, you know, if you do this, does it mean this? And they'd read them as answers. You know, that I'm asking because I think, hey, I, I want to know the, I want to know the answer. But more importantly than that, I think asking the question is going to hopefully get you to say something that's interesting and revealing and, and explain something about you that you wouldn't explain if I didn't ask you this question. That's why I'm doing it. I'm not making a declaration. I'm asking a question. It's, that seems like a very hard skill to make come through also to the subject, to make him realize 
I'm not out to get you. I'm actually trying to find out something from you. Well, so, so you know, this, I, I don't mind. I mean, if the subject, if I, if I do it in a way so the subject feels that they're being got at, that's on me. I mean, you know, that's not unreasonable for them to, you know, if I'm too pushy in the wrong way, that's also part of what I have to judge, you know, because if I'm like that in a way that makes them uncomfortable or puts them on the back foot in the wrong way, they're probably not going to say anything very interesting. You know, so I have to judge that. But, but, but I think people from the outside tend to, you know, they, they, they tend to read questions as accusations. That's really interesting. So that, that just came out, and uh, presumably you're on to something else, which you probably can't talk about in the spirit of not talking about something <laughs> that's going to come out six months from now. But just in terms of, in general, the are you free to, to kind of uh, tackle the next thing? Like, you, you usually come up with it? Do, do your editors it's often a, bring you this it's mix? A, it's, a, it's a real variety. Sometimes, you know, the next thing... Um, that I can't talk about um, that I hope will come out in August is a big non-celebrity very strange story and I and I, that was something that I came across and suggested but pro- probably more often um, it comes up someone in the office is thinking about something or it comes up in a discussion uh, between me and um, someone at the magazine all right well I'm going to stop inflicting this uh, extremely hot room on you so thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it no thanks very much all right well and also look forward to that story in august we might have to have you back just if for it, a short it, one just to talk about that if it comes out in august that's when i hope it will be there or whenever it does all right thanks thanks very much thanks for listening to long form podcast i'm evan ratliff my co-hosts are max linsky and aaron lammer and uh, our wonderful editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Chelsea Edgar. Thanks a lot to Chris Heath for joining us this week. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.